Facebook, across Twitter, and uh, let's uh, let's get to this. Is Kanye West here and speaking with Alex? And Jones. Alex, tweet from my account. You like that, Ari Emanuel? <laughs> I'm all about free speech, and the greatest threat is those that want to silence us. That's why it comes First Amendment. Yeah. Anybody trying to take your speech is the enemy. Absolutely. Well, and it's um, I do find it a little bit hypocritical that Elon Musk said that he was purchasing Twitter to create a free speech environment. He says that free speech is the thing that's going to save the West and, and our civilization. But yet he has taken exception to you, Alex, for some seemingly specific reason, maybe personal to him, but definitely not principled. So I think it's time that the people finally. So. Why does the mainstream media regard Kanye West as dangerous? Like, why is it dangerous to have Kanye West speak without censorship? And I don't think it's dangerous. Now, Kanye West may not say the type of things that you feel comfortable with with having on your platform because you want to uh, establish a certain certain standard for behavior, for for speech. You, You have... Now, a certain audience that you're going after, so I can understand why not everyone platform you know, would want everybody on it. But if you're making the argument that it's dangerous to have Kanye West speak, or it's dangerous to have David Duke speak, or it's dangerous to have Richard Spencer speak, or it's dangerous to have Mike Enoch speak, what you're saying is that your ideas can't compete with them on a level playing field. And you're also saying that people evolve to be gullible and stupid and to be easily manipulated. And there's just no evidence for that. We have evolved to be incredibly good at detecting when other people are trying to fool us. Right? We wouldn't be here today if we evolved to be gullible. And so this notion that you're just, you know, people will just get bit by some kind of anti-Semitic virus if they listen to Kanye West is ludicrous. Now, I find it difficult to listen to Kanye West because he he does not speak in a way that I find useful to me, right? Kanye West isn't, you know, bringing new insights into life or into the Talmud or into the Pharisees or into Jewish history or into Jewish conduct. And I'm not getting anything from Kanye West that I can't get from more erudite, more more learned thinkers. And I, I believe that Jews, like Christians, like the Japanese and Indians and Hindus and Muslims and Buddhists, everybody is improved by accurate criticism. So I have no problem with accurate criticism of of Jews, of of Anglos, of Christians, any group. I think we're improved by having accurate criticism. And I wouldn't be afraid to have Kanye West on my my show. And I just find it ludicrous that people think, right, the only substantial argument for claiming that it's dangerous to have Kanye West speak unfiltered on a program is that uh, he'll he'll just turn you know thousands and millions of people you know in in a whole new direction because your ideas on a level playing field can't compete. That's what you're saying when you you make the claims for more and more censorship. You're saying your ideas can't compete with these dangerous dissident ideas. Now I think that uh, the more people hear from Kanye West, generally speaking, the less impressed they will be. Now 
Some people will be impressed. Some people will be invigorated. Some people will take strength. And so no ideologue, you know, no activist is going to take you anywhere you don't want to go. But if you have an opening to, you know, some, some new ideology and Kanye West or anyone else provides a, a new way of looking at the world and it's congenial with where you are and where you want to go in life, then yes, Kanye West may move you along a particular journey. But no one's going to be moved in an ideological journey against their own best interests, against their own values. You're only going to go where you want to go. All the Nazi propaganda in the world, all the communist propaganda in the world didn't change minds, right? It fortified people who already had these beliefs. It helped people who were already predisposed to these beliefs, say, go a little further or go a little stronger in these beliefs. And it's also possible that individuals who may be a little mentally unbalanced may, you know, get get a form of strength and encouragement from Kanye West sentiments and individually act out. But there's not going to be some collective mass psychosis due to, you know, having someone like Kanye West speak freely. Right? We don't have to be afraid of anyone's views. We don't have to be afraid of anyone's opinions. We don't have to be concerned or offended by any point of view on matters, religious, cultural, racial, political, whatever, right? Be not afraid. I, I, I think that the people who are so desperate to, to uh, censor Kanye West, they're afraid that their ideas essentially cannot compete with, with Kanye's ideas on, on a level, level playing field. Glenn Bedley says, at a street level, it's more dangerous to Jews for Kanye to speak because he is influential among low IQ urban blacks who would physically attack Orthodox Jews. But I, I, I don't know if, if Kanye is that particularly influential. There is a, a crime problem in the United States, and whatever Kanye West adds to that crime problem is going to be microscopic. Right? Kanye West is not going to do more damage to America. He's not going to instigate more crime. He's not going to instigate more than 0.1% more crime than the Black Lives Matter movement. And the Black Lives Matter movement has unleashed thousands of extra murders and made millions of people feel increasingly unsafe. It has deteriorated the, the quality of life for dramatically for probably a third of Americans. So over 100 million Americans have a substantially decreased quality of life due to the Black Lives Matter movement. So you compare the impact of Kanye West to Black Lives Matter. I would be surprised if Kanye West has 0.1% of the support of Black Lives Matter. And yet Black Lives Matter enjoyed the support of Fortune 500 companies and enjoyed the near universal support of the mainstream media, our cultural and academic and elites at every level threw themselves essentially behind Black Lives Matter, which then escalated you know, massive violence, massive social disruption, deteriorated the quality of life for you know, over 100 million Americans. So we don't have to be frightened by, by Kanye West. We have more important things to be scared of, and that is that people who commit violent crime in this country are not punished, not punished appropriately, and are not kept in prison. I know it's boring, and Richard Spencer and his crew say this is like just autistic, conservative, Republican politics to talk about the need to lock up those who commit violent crime. 
but it's such a simple thing. Lock up the, the 1% of the, the population who are super predators and you will halve the murder rate, right? You will double the quality of life for over 100 million Americans who live in and around urban areas and whose lives are being diminished by Black Lives Matter inspired crime waves. So Rolling Stone has a new article on Kanye West and uh, Kanye is boasting that uh, the backlash from his previous interviews has been awesome for his presidential campaign. He blames the Jews for Hitler's reputation. Hitler would have the same reputation in the world and in the Anglo world, whether or not they were Jews, right? The reason that Hitler has a bad reputation is because Anglo countries went to war against Hitler, right? Suffered in that war, finally defeated him. But it is only in essentially Anglo and Western countries where Hitler is regarded as the epitome of evil. The rest of the world... He simply regarded as a guy who lost a war. Uh, Kanye is repeatedly comparing abortion to genocide. I think that's a, that's a reasonable argument. Right? I don't I don't see anything ridiculous or to be derided in that perspective by Kanye West. West reiterates his claim that Jewish people control the majority of the media, along with the banks and real estate and malls. That's simply not true. If there were zero Jews in the media. Right. There are very few Jews in the Swedish media, right? but the Swedish media is still left-wing. If there were zero Jews in the American media, it would be just as left-wing because Anglos, Anglicans, you know, Anglo-Saxons tend to be about as, as left-wing as Jews when you have the compare for the same level of uh, education. So Jews in particular have not been powerful in the banking industry. So... Yeah, historically, the, the Rothschilds, you know, 150 years ago here and there, but not in the American banking industry. So Kanye West claims there is a collusion of Jewish attorneys and managers and everyone else you can think of give America porn. America would have just as much porn if there were zero Jews having anything to do with the pornography industry. The pornography industry does not require high IQ types to produce it. All right? It's not some specialty product that requires the particular skill of Jews to create, right? So countries where there are very few Jews, they are just as much awash in pornography. So zero Jews in America, you'd have just as much pornography in America. Pornography is not an elite product that requires, you know, fantastical levels of IQ to produce. Okay, he claims that his ex-wife is used to selling porn. Well, he married her knowing that she got famous by releasing a sex tape. So what Kanye West doesn't really want to do is, you know, why did I marry a porn star? So Kim Kardashian's essentially a porn star. She's famous for performing you know, pornographic acts on camera, and he chose to marry her. So he doesn't want to think, oh, you know, why did I you know, marry a porn star? He doesn't want to look at that. So Kanye says porn is bullying and controlling his staff. Porn is a very powerful stimulus, uh, but it's not going to be bullying or controlling anyone unless you have that particular addiction to porn, and then it's not so much uh, bullying. It's just uh, you have you know, miswired neurocircuitry so that you, you're not able to handle that level of stimulation. Oh, 
So Kanye, according to people who work for him, used pornography himself to bully and control his staff. Well, at least in Kanye's credit, he, he would admit that uh, he's, uh, you know, he's led a pretty bizarre life. It says that women in porn are the products of pedophilia. Well, I remember after I went to bed with porn star Kendra J, she said to me, Lukey, you know how porn stars always like to tell the media that they weren't molested as children. They said it's not true. We were pretty much all molested as kids. Like I learned to disassociate from my body when I have sex and I kind of float above my body to a corner of a room kind of looking down on what I'm doing. So not, not all porn stars were molested, but yeah, a very substantial number were molested as, as children. I just know from my own experience, when I would go to a singles event or to a social function, I would tend to pick out you know, those women who were vulnerable to my charms, who inevitably turned out to have fathers who were sex addicts, you know, fathers who carried on multiple affairs, fathers who had you know, a garage f filled with, with pornography. So they were working out their own trauma as I was working out my trauma. We would get together, you know, ease each other's trauma for a few weeks, a few months before we finally just absolutely blew, blew apart. Uh, Kanye West says Jews should work for Christians, and uh, Rolling Stone highlights this as, as particularly damning against Kanye West, saying that Jews should work for Christians. Well, imagine if he said Christians should never employ Jews. Right? If he said the opposite of that, Christians should never employ a Jew, right? he, he would get media furor. Here where he says Christians should give jobs to Jews, this is regarded as, as terrible by, by Kanye. He says, I'll hire a Jewish person in a second if I knew they weren't a spy and I could look through their phone. Look, there's nothing inherently superior about employing someone or being employed. Right? The situation's the boss. Your boss isn't the boss. Situation's the boss. When you hire someone, you are taking on levels of vulnerability. So... Some people are better suited for being in charge in, in work, and other people are better suited taking direction. Right? Not everyone's cut out to be entrepreneurial. 95% of people, it seems to me, are not cut out to be entrepreneurial. 95% of people are better suited working for someone else. Bosses get the headaches. You know, they have to think about the job off the clock. Uh, there are many advantages to being an employee. It's not like being an employer is just inherently superior to being an employee. When asked if he'd chosen a running mate, Kanye West says he's considering Candace Owens, but he has a problem with Ben Shapiro's in control of Candace Owens' voice. Has Candace Owens tweeted anything about Kanye in the past month? Because I've not been able to find it. So Ben Shapiro is Candace Owens' boss. And so it seems like she has stopped engaging with Kanye publicly. And to the best of my knowledge, she's not uh, critiquing him. So... Right now, it's 1.33 p.m. in Sydney, Australia. It is Tuesday, December the 13th, 2022. So, according to Rolling Stone, Kanye spent the majority of his interview with Gavin McGuinness denouncing the Jewish community and women who haven't given birth before the age of 30 while professing his love for everyone. Well, guess what? You can criticize the Jewish community and you can criticize women who haven't given birth before the age of 30 and still hold love in your heart for everyone, right? Just because you criticize someone, just because you say bad things about someone, just because you challenge someone, right? Just because you call someone out doesn't mean you don't love them. 
So Kanye West wants the, the rules of the country to be based on the Bible. Not sure how practical that is, right? The Bible was composed 2,200 to 3,200 years ago. I mean, you could deduce some things from the Bible, but uh, I'm not sure it's, it's practical. Okay, there's a recent Rolling Stone piece that said, uh, white racists love hearing a black voice articulating ideas that they can't say themselves in public without blowback. And that uh, people like Gavin McGuinness and Nick Fuentes get to wear blackface with Kanye West as their base proxy. Yeah, guess what? When people are not allowed to speak freely, they're going to seek substitute voices and substitute forms of expression. It's not like you can just shut down people's ability to speak freely. It's not like you can just say there are all these areas of life that you can't discuss publicly, that you're only permitted you know, this this amount of variety, this tiny amount of variety in certain discussion areas before your life will be ruined and think there'll be no blowback for that. To think there'll be no consequence for shutting down legitimate discussion. So there are many elites who fear that, you know, free and frank discussion of say group differences will prove incredibly disruptive and threaten their hold on power. Remember elites get to hold on to power only by making coalitions, right? Only by forming common alliances with other strata of society. So the Democrats, essentially a high-low coalition. You've got the elites at the top and the, the welfare dependent on the bottom. That's largely the Democratic coalition. So elites get to govern and elites get to have dominant power because they're working with a splintered society. When you have a united public, such as in a substantial populist movement, Right, that threatens elite power. Because when you have a united public, then the elites are no longer in control. So elites can only rule by dividing and making then common alliances with you know, various strata of society. But let's listen to a little bit more here from Kanye West, Alex Jones, Nick Fuentes. We demand a real victory here. We've been at war, essentially, since Trump came down the golden escalator seven years ago to put America first, to put Christ first, to free the Internet and do these kinds of things. And here we are all this time later, and it seems like we've stagnated or in some ways maybe even taken a step back. So it's time that people demand we want Christ first. We want America first. We want Alex Jones back on Twitter. These are just and reasonable demands. Well, I see it like this, and I want you to be able to elaborate on this, but I don't want Ye to get his run because he's got so much to say and he always gets cut off. But so I'm going to try to shut up as much, but he, we can go four or five hours if you want, but the main show's actually four hours long. I was just hoping for three. We'll, we'll do four hours if, if you guys are up for it. But, 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 but here's what I'm saying. I am a classical liberal at heart, so I love everybody, and I judge people by who, what they do, not what color they are. And then I look at the things you said, and some of them out of context I don't agree with, but compared to a liberal— a modern liberal saying white people are inherently evil and white people are bad because of their skin color. And then that's what the ADL and Southern Poverty Law Center and these leftist groups in Hollywood have pushed. So they're putting out something beyond even what Hitler said, but reversing it onto white people. And we're supposed to sit there and accept it. And then Ye comes out and says, hey, you know, I see kind of a mafia running things and then he's the devil. No, that's bullshit. Sorry. All right, we're going to curse a little bit less on this. Subject. Yes, yes, Reverend. I'm going to try. I'll stop. <laughs> and the reason I, I, I wanted Nick, people have heard from Nick, but he, people haven't heard from Nick with Ye standing right next to him. You know, it's like that's the thing that 
the Zionist control, the 300 um, in control. So it's interesting that Kanye and Nick still seem to be riding together. Uh, Nick strikes me as a pretty solid person. He, he doesn't seem to have the emotional ups and downs of, say, a Milo. You know, all of the media and control of the government. They don't want us to connect to each other. Like my dad said, OK, they say you're an anti-Semitic, but they say he's a white supremacist. And he's asking me. So Nick Fuentes is not a white supremacist. Yeah, he said things that would uh, make you think he's a white nationalist, but I don't think that's a fair label either. To, to the extent that he's a, a white nationalist or an anti-Semite, he's unlike any other you know, white nationalists or anti-Semites that we've, we've known before. I mean, this is not a guy whose, whose program is primarily about hating people. Yeah, there are individual segments, there are individual statements that uh, sound quite hateful, and I can see why you know, people would be up in arms at Nick Fuentes. I think you know a lot of the things he says are careless, that they're unresearched. But this this is not you know your garden variety white supremacist or anti-Semite. It's not surprising to me that he would team up with Kanye West. Like Nick is an incredibly charismatic person. Seems to have you know pre World War II. Christian views, which were, were held by hundreds of millions of people, and someone who is indeed America first, and you know a Christian nationalist, right? Me, well, what's the difference? I said, Dad, there is no difference. It's just separation and confusion. They want to separate and confuse the Christians and make us afraid to stand next to each other. A Christian can, yeah, he's. Medley's right. He's not a white supremacist. He's not an anti-Semite. He's a very naughty boy. Uh, Nick says a lot of stupid things. And Nick gets himself into, you know, Nick is the primary cause of most of his problems, just like I am the primary cause of most of my problems. And you are probably the primary cause of most of your problems. So my heart doesn't break for Nick Fuentes, right? He has, has brought this trouble on himself. Can stand next to anyone. We can go visit R. Kelly in prison. We can go talk to Harvey Weinstein. That's what Jesus did. Yes, because Jesus can save everyone. But if the Zionists can get us so afraid that they're going to do what they've been doing to me, attempting to put me in jail, freeze my... So Zionists, okay, generally vote Republican. So those Jews who are Zionists are the most likely to vote Republican to want strong border enforcement to restrict immigration in the United States to be tough in matters of law and order, right? So Zionist Jews are not left-wing Jews, generally speaking, right? The more left you go, the less likely you are to be Zionist. Right? Zionist Jews are nationalists. They're nationalists for the Jewish state. They're nationalists for the American state. They're nationalists for the English state, if, if that's where they live. Uh, Zionist Jews tend to be right-wing Jews. I counts smearing me on the media. You know, all of these things, you know, you put on the whole armor of God and they will not be able to break your spirit. They and by the way, so the first 14 minutes of this interview, you'd be really hard pressed to say this is like some, you know, hateful, horrible, you know, white nationalist, anti-Semitic propaganda. I mean, this is primarily a... Fairly low IQ, pre World War II Christian perspective on things. Hey, we can do three hours on this subject, yeah. and, and you or you do five hours on it.
And, and let's just get it all going now because I want to get into everything about your plans to try to bring jobs to America, unifying people, uh, running for president, all those other issues. So I'm not steering us away from that. I'm just saying let's just run. Yeah, the, the chat says Nick is explicitly pro-white. He's explicitly pro-Christian, right? Now, it's cool in America to be pro-Jewish, to be pro-black, to be pro-LGBTQ+. Right? There are all sorts of identities where it's very cool to be pro, but to be you know, pro-white, that's considered the, the most evil thing ever. And there's no inherent reason that that needs to be a, an anti-Semitic or a, a dangerous criminal orientation. There's no inherent reason why that needs to be a violent orientation any more than being pro-gay or pro-black inevitably leads to violence. What does happen is the stronger your in-group identity, the more concerned you are and the more skeptical you are and the more likely you are to have negative feelings about outgroups. But that applies across the board, whether you're, you're Jewish, gay, Christian, Buddhist, whatever. It's nothing that's unique to white Christians. With it, as far as you guys want to go, and then I want to get into all the other topics that surround things. Oh, beautiful. So where do you want to start? Well, I mean... Yes, Nick is critical of Judaism, is critical of Jews. Yeah, you can call him anti-Semitic, but it's not an, he's not anti-Semitic in the way that we usually understand that term. Right? This is not someone whose life is convulsed by hatred of Jews. Right? Jews are not the primary topic of Nick Fuentes' streams. I, from to the extent that I'm knowledgeable, I would say that Jews take up you know, less than... 3% of the things that he talks about on his live streams. Right? He's not a William Pierce. He's not a you know, Oliver Revilo. He's, he's, you know, he's not an Adolf Hitler. You know, his, his primary fascination, his primary drive is not to suppress the Jews. I mean, I would just start with this. There are good people from every group and, 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 and every type of culture, and we all know that. But definitely the left, when it was America defeated Hitler— calls their opposition Hitler when both my grandfathers almost died in the Army Air Corps. Both of them almost died. One of them crash-landed after a mission and got all... Okay, question here. How can one be pro-Catholic and pro-white? Well, Christian identity, including Roman Catholic identity, has frequently fused with racial identity. So Christianity is not inherently globalist, right? Christianity is being used to be nationalist, ethno-nationalist, racial nationalist, uh, Christianity is incredibly flexible, as is Judaism, right? So until about 100 years ago, Jews were very comfortable with calling Jews a race, right? The idea that it's you know, a horrible thing to call Jews a race, that developed after World War II as some kind of self-protective mechanism. Let's uh, dissuade everyone from believing that Jews are a race, but you can make a case that you know, those, say, Ashkenazi Jews who have considerable genetic ties, you, you can call them a distinct people and a distinct race, and I think it's inherently dangerous. But coming up, I want to discuss religious conceptions of purity, right? The co-constitution of religion and race, conceptions of racial purity and difference and implications for Jewish identity. This is a lecture from the Katz Center for Advanced Jewish Studies, Christian Zionism, White Nationalism, response to the boycott, divestment, and sanction movement. So I've got some thoughts here on religious conceptions of purity and race. And also coming up, we're going to discuss, is the Talmud racist? So this is a rabbi, Mira Wasserman, who's also a PhD 
and she is a scholar at the Reconstructionist Seminary. begins Seminary. over 20 years ago. I was a newly ordained rabbi serving the Jewish community in Bloomington, Indiana, a vibrant college town. I had been in the position less than a week when one of my new congregants came in to show me a 20-page pamphlet that she had discovered on her front lawn on the 4th of July. It was a piece of white supremacist propaganda, full of virulent expressions of hatred directed against Blacks, against immigrants, and mostly against Jews. The 20-page pamphlet accused Jews of devious violence and identified the Talmud as both the source of our misanthropy and as evidence of it. As you can see, there is an extended section that focuses on the Talmud with a long list of purported Talmudic citations that convey vile statements about non-Jews. My new congregant was very concerned about this section. This can't be true, she asked. Can it? Does the Talmud actually say this stuff? Right away, I could see that many of the so-called citations were outlandish fabrications. Others were too garbled. Okay, so this is true for many of uh, Nick Fuentes' criticisms of the Talmud. So many of the, the most common you know, collections of you know, supposedly devastating critiques of the Talmud, much of it's invented, you know, much of it's garbled, and some of it's just plain distorted, and then some of it is accurate. To make any sense of, and a few were somewhat accurate, though taken out of context. The seed of my future research project had been planted, but... I do I think that uh, Ye is being deliberately provocative for publicity? I think Ye is an alcoholic. I don't think he is in control of what he's doing. I think he's reacting instinctually. And part of him, I think, definitely needs to be fed by, by getting a maximum of public attention. I mean, that is kind of a through line in his life, that uh, this is someone very needy of, of being in the news and creating provocation. But I, I don't... I don't think he is deliberately experiencing the past two months as, as his deliberate ploy to gain more attention. I think he's just reacting. I didn't know it yet. Over the coming weeks, our town was again and again littered with heaps of this hateful propaganda. A broad coalition of religious and civic leaders organized in response, and there was a terrific outpouring of communal solidarity and activism. Still, over the course of that year, hate activity continued to rise across the region, and my synagogue and the local Hillel received the direct threats. Then, one Friday night in Chicago, the main suspect went on an extended slow-motion shooting spree, first spraying bullets at a crowd gathered outside of a synagogue, then shooting and killing Ricky Birdsong, a Black man out on a jog. Evading police, the shooter drove down to Bloomington, where on that Sunday morning, he shot and killed Wan Jun Yoon, an international student from South Korea who was just exiting his church. When police finally closed in on the shooter, he killed himself. This was on July 4th, 1999. A year had passed since the pamphlet had first appeared. I tell this story from so long ago, not only because of the role it played in shaping my interest in our topic, but also because it illustrates what is at stake in confronting hateful ideas. Okay, so most people who spread quote-unquote hateful ideas aren't going to shoot anyone. So the correlation between you know, saying something hateful and shooting people is quite low. But anyone who is antisocial enough to you know, hand out these kind of pamphlets, uh, just spray them under people's lawns, right? people with that kind of antisocial orientation, and 
people as, as reckless as Nick, who you know goes saying all sorts of pronouncements about the Talmud, which he knows nothing about, right? That is an antisocial orientation that does make you one more likely to speak and encourage other people in antisocial orientation. And two, if you're antisocial, yeah, I think you're definitely more likely to commit crime. But I would hold that the correlation between you know, saying racist things and shooting people is very, very low, that there are far more substantial causes for criminal violence. So Kevin Michael Grace is back. It appears he's got a weekly show with Dennis Dale. Yeah, I was looking into Rebel, but... I have to be careful about what I say. That's just what I wanted to talk about it. Uh, I guess we'll have to do it carefully, maybe, or just tell me if we can't go any farther. But he wanted to talk about your... what, Whatever reason you're off of YouTube right now, uh, and what's going on. What are, well, I'm not going to go back to YouTube, because oh. I don't know... I have no idea what I'm allowed to say. Yeah. I, I was suspended, I think, three times. And the last time I was suspended, they didn't even bother to tell me why I was suspended. Of course. You know, violations of terms of service, or whatever, right? Yeah. And like, okay, so what is it? Well, YouTube does spell out its terms of service, and many people are able to you know, figure it out, work within it. It's like learning a language, right? Not everything is set out for you. You have to, you know, you know, fill in many of the gaps yourself. But this this commentary reminds me of something that Richard Spencer said a couple of years ago that JF got a P is the only person who knows how to work within YouTube's terms of service. So it's not easy trying to play within YouTube's terms of service, but some people are able to pull it off. So what is the type of personality who's able to work within restrictions like YouTube's terms of service? And what is the type of personality who is unable to figure them out and correctly apply them? So... J.F. Garapi, he was able to work within YouTube's terms of service. I, I don't think he got a strike or maybe only one when he rejiggered his channel, started a new channel, and then operated his stream strictly within YouTube's terms of service. He stopped having guests because it was too tiring for, for J.F. to educate his guests on YouTube's terms of service. But he was very quick at noting, hey, you can't say that on, on YouTube. So some people are, are able to have the empathy or you know why a corporation like YouTube would impose a terms of service and try to understand where YouTube is coming from. Uh, you know some people are willing to yeah see things from the other person's point of view, try to understand what the terms of service are trying to accomplish, and then many people are still able to work productively within those terms of service. But because not every infraction can be spelled out, right? I, I notice many people on the distant rides want us want YouTube and other social media companies that be explicit, tell us exactly what we can and cannot say. But but speech is so complex and, and various, you can never spell out every single thing that you can and cannot say. You have to work from the certain principles and examples that YouTube gives. So yeah, I think it, it is possible to work within YouTube's terms of service. It is frustrating. You're not in control. It's a little bit like being an employee. Uh, sometimes an employee can get fired and it's not the employee's fault. But generally speaking, I would say more than 90% of the time when an employee gets fired, he played a substantial role in his own firing. Now, the examples that the boss gives for why he's firing you may not be the primary reason that you're getting fired, right? People usually don't say what they mean. People usually don't mean what they say. 
but the fired employee usually has played a role in his own demise. And so it's not easy working within these social media terms of service. It you know, certainly driven me crazy, but at least some personalities are able to pull it off. So what, what separates those personalities who are able to have a, a productive relationship with YouTube versus those personalities who can't, right? It, it, maybe it has to do with, you know, empathy and consideration for YouTube, right? We are using the YouTube platform right now to have this discussion. What are YouTube's interests? YouTube wants to maintain a certain ethos on its platform to attract advertising, to stay in the good graces of the mainstream media and its fellow elites. Some people can pull it off, have productive discussions on YouTube, and other people can't. I just cruised over to Kevin Michael Grace's channel and all his content's gone. He's just poured it all down because he doesn't feel like he, he knows what the, what the lines are on YouTube. Uh, other people have successfully graduated onto Odyssey or Rumble. I, I don't know why Kevin Michael Grace hasn't done that. I think it was something about Zelensky, because I've made a habit of mocking this man, and he oh. did not like that. I'm going to have to end this now. I... I'm pretty sure that he didn't get a strike for mocking Zelensky. The saint that was among us, right? I, did, I never took you for a Putin lover, Kevin. So I agree with Dennis and Kevin here about how the media portrayal of Zelensky is, you know, the saint that, that lives among us. It's incredibly one-sided. It's uh, mendacious. It's, it's tiring. It's juvenile, right? This notion that there's, you know, only really one appropriate way to respond to Ukraine, and that is you go Ukraine, we're going to send you all the weapons that we can. We're going to give you all the support that we can against big, bad Putin. All right. I agree with rejecting that caricature. On the other hand, I, I'm in a, as an American, like what's in America's best interest? I don't think it's in America's best interest to send Ukraine tens of billions of dollars and all these weapons. Right? I don't see it as in our best interest to risk nuclear war. And we have a, you know, we have a risk of, of a nuclear conflagration here with Russia due to the West arming Ukraine and getting involved in this conflict. And I just don't see how that's in America's, Australia's, England's, France, Germany's best interests. On the other hand, Zelensky seems to be a patriotic Ukrainian doing absolutely everything he can for his country. And that's what I would expect. So I don't share the, the adoration that uh, the mainstream media gives to Zelensky. But on the other hand, I don't share the contempt that Tucker Carlson and much of the dissident right shows for Zelensky. It seems to me that Zelensky is doing the best he can in his position to provide the best service and the best chances for his people to survive the, the Russian onslaught. No, I share your disdain for him. Why? I don't get that. Why would you disdain Zelensky? He seems to be fighting on, on behalf of his people. It's like despising Robert E. Lee, right? Because you disagree with slavery, you think slavery is evil, but Robert E. Lee wasn't fighting the civil war on behalf of slavery. He was fighting the civil war on behalf of his people. Yeah, and why? Yeah. I agree with that. 
I, I don't see any reason why we should be forced to take sides between Ukraine and, and Russia. I, I understand emotionally, if you're like 100% on the side of Ukraine, emotionally, I am 100% on the side of Ukraine. Emotionally, I'm just totally with the Ukrainians against the Russians. But I agree with Kevin and Dennis here. Like, If you're an American, an Australian, an Englishman, a Frenchman, you should be primarily looking out for your people. And I don't see the necessity of taking an armed side in this conflict. The side between yes. Russia and Ukraine. I'm choosing Russia. Yeah. Okay. You know, my, my joke is, if the universal falsehood could be monetized, the Ukraine would be the wealthiest country on earth. <laughs> yeah. Right at the beginning of this war, the New York Times uploaded a piece basically endorsing the noble lie. Oh, yes, the Ukraine says these things that are... Yeah, I know. It's it's amazing how all the principles are. They were, I guess, they weren't really being held by anybody, but they just fall away. And people are like, yeah, actually, you know, it's okay to lie about war. Uh, it's not so bad if you bomb a hospital. I, I don't know if they said that exactly, but that seems to be the, the thing. Well, you know, what was it? The, uh, the ghost of uh, Kiev, yeah. right? Yeah. And an American congressman actually retweeted a picture of Sam Hyde. Did they? Oh, God. That's lovely. Yeah. Well, um, I, just, I just I just see projection with them. Yeah. You know, we, we have, we've seen the videos, we've seen the pictures of them torturing people, torturing soldiers, torturing civilians, uh, you know, the ones they call collaborators, they tie yeah. them to trees and leave them like that, that sort of thing. And this is all out there, and we're supposed to think, oh no, these are the good guys. No, right. I don't think so. And these people, they're torturing, maybe just ethnic Russians, you know, and they're kind of stuck there, right? And they're, yeah. Um, but it's so obviously our war. Well, what was it, a week ago? Zelensky and the Ukrainian Orthodox Church? Yes, and nobody's talking about it. They had troops, they had troops really? going into monasteries? Yeah, no, he's about to loot him like, uh, you know, um, uh, Henry VIII. They're about to, yeah. Um, it's astounding. It's not covered. Uh, Tucker Carlson. Why wouldn't he ban the Russian Orthodox Church? The Russian Orthodox Church has been in, in bed with the government for 100 years. I, I would expect Zelensky to do absolutely everything he can on behalf of his people, including you know, shutting down disruptive oppositional forces and parties and, and even churches in, in Ukraine, all right? War is a matter of life and death. Ukraine is fighting for its survival. When when you're fighting to survive, yeah, it, it makes sense. You'd want to shut down any centers of opposition. God bless him, covered this. And that's how I first heard of it. Uh, the, Tucker Carlson covered it, and he said they're, they're finding ways to, um, to persecute. What do I think of Jordan Shanks and uh, his house being torched in Sydney? So John describes him as an Australian journalist. So Jordan Shanks, he's certainly not your, your typical journalist, right? He makes fun of people and he goes after people. And uh, what's he, he, he's not, it's hard to, it's hard to see him as a, uh, as, as a journalist. But uh, he goes by the, the title uh, Friendly, Friendly Geordies. Yeah, that's his YouTube channel, Friendly Geordies. So he's a, he's a comic and uh, a YouTuber. But uh, definitely, definitely not uh, your, your typical uh, journalist. YouTuber. Controversial Friendly Geordies YouTube blogger Jordan Shanks. Yes, Jordan Shanks is controversial, all right. A young man with plenty of opinions. So I think it sucks that his home got firebombed. I think he played a substantial role in his own misfortune. He's not a journalist. He's not someone who you know, strives to be fair to the other side. So 
he provoked people and they responded, right? He, friendly Geordies, played a substantial role in his own suffering. And plenty of powerful targets who have reason to hate him. Well, obviously, we don't know who did it. Uh, there's a long list of suspects. My mind was racing as to who it is. And was Shanks glad to have the media on the case? Well, Okay, a uh, quick question from the chat. Mr. Fox, could you explain your emotional investment in supporting Ukraine? Well, I don't know. In, in any analogous situation where a major power invades a much smaller nation next door, I would emotionally be on the side of that smaller nation. I think that's pretty much a universal human reaction. And you see that in basically the, the world's reaction is pretty much to side with Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine is a much smaller country than Russia, and Russia invaded it. So if, I mean, if uh, England, you know, invaded some, you know, small African country, you know, I might feel sympathy for the African country. Yeah, anytime a much more powerful nation, particularly one that has had nuclear weapons pointing at me for 60, 70 years, yeah. I'm not going to be favorably disposed towards Russia and the former Soviet Union. Right? We were in a Cold War with Soviet Union for 50 years, 40 years. I'm not going to be sympathetic to that. Then they go invade their much smaller neighbor. Yeah, I'm going to be sympathetic with their neighbor, just like I was sympathetic with Finland. Right? Finland was invaded by the Soviet Union. The small, plucky country did a really good job fighting off Stalin for a few months. So given the long history of enmity between the United States and the Soviet Union due to you know, both countries having nuclear weapons pointed at the other, if you know, this, this former belligerent power, the Soviet Union, now slimmed down as Russia invades their much smaller neighbor, yeah, I'm going to be emotionally on the side of uh, those who were invaded. Well, not exactly. When they turned up to interview him, he laid into them. I saw all of your articles today where you all wrote all of the same little narrative that you write every time. I would hope that you would put just as much attention on the fact that that happened as you have on trying to assassinate my character over the last year. Thanks for your time. So he's a bit of a jerk. <laughs> he's, like, he's opinionated, he's cruel, he's cutting, he's obnoxious, he infuriates people. He's, he's not a journalist. He doesn't pretend to, to be fair. And uh, someone retaliated. That, not surprisingly, didn't make the stories about the fire on Wednesday, although one of his criticisms did get a run. The press did everything that they possibly could to make sure that you know exactly where I live. Thank you very much, you vultures. That, yeah, that, that's a, a good criticism of the press. They did indeed, and given the circumstances, they really should not have done. That was irresponsible. And having given the media a serve on his doorstep, Shanks then went to town on his YouTube channel. Let's see how much those sacks of sorry vermin let go to the news, because so far their story has been... With so many enemies and so many people hating him, it's a wonder that this hasn't happened sooner. Oh, OK, so you wish death on me. Thanks, thanks so much. You cheer... So simply pointing out that uh, Friendly Geordies you know, has gone out of his way to mock a little, infuriate people, uh, it's no surprise that someone has retaliated. This is not someone who's gone out of his way to be fair and balanced. 
is not someone who's gone out of his way to be reasonable and responsible. This is not someone who's gone out of his way with empathy. This is someone who's gone out of his way to make a lot of people's lives miserable for, for good reasons or bad. But whether you're operating for good reasons or for bad, when you make other people's lives miserable, they will retaliate. That's just an iron law for how the world works. Right? Friendly Geordies played a substantial role in his own misery. He brought this on himself. Doesn't mean that it's legal. I want to see these people punished. But friendly Geordies went after people, and people don't always respond as you want. Right? You'd like them to respond by simply writing a letter to the Sydney Morning Herald. Right? You want people to respond appropriately. Let's say you get into a fight at a pub and you punch someone. It's entirely possible they'll respond by kicking you in the nuts, beating you down, stabbing you, and shooting you. People don't always retaliate proportionately. You start a fight, and you can start a fight verbally, orally, through words, through through videos. You start a fight. You can't predict how other people are going to respond. So one of the 12 steps principles is we try to get along with other people to the greatest extent possible. Because when you infuriate other people, you are not going to like how they respond. Opportunistic interest in their eyes. No empathy whatsoever. Absolute scumbags. Sorry, vermin and scumbags. Yes, he's a charmer. And that's what makes the Jordan Shanks story so vexed. Because he's a self-described journalist who doesn't play by the traditional rules of journalism. And in his slick YouTube rants, which go out to more than 600,000 subscribers, most of whom are young and unimpressed by the mainstream media, Shanks names and shames journalists he thinks aren't doing a good enough job. And nobody is spared. The only reason you think Media Watch does a good job is because of the same reason you think all ABC shows do a good job. They just tell you they're doing a good job, and so you think, okay, well, they said it, so... They don't hold the press to account. Paul Barry's got to be friends with half of them. Geordie's attacks are often personal and can be vicious. And in the case of former New South Wales National Party leader John Barillaro, they landed him in court. He's a con man to the core. Powered by spaghetti. Not only did he use the public's money to prop up a friend's failing business, he perjured himself. Nine times over. Barillaro sued for defamation, winning $715,000 from YouTube's parent Google, with the judge describing Geordie's campaign as relentless, racist and abusive, and wringing an apology plus $100,000 in costs out of shanks. So, does he still deserve our support and sympathy? Well, yes, of course. Firebombing anyone is a serious crime, and it looks like someone was really out to get him. Detectives say the same property was also hit without warning by another fire last Thursday. No direct warning or direct message, no. And shaken to boot. Shanks says he'll take an indefinite break from broadcasting. Luckily, this is not something Australian journalists normally have to deal with. But it is not entirely unprecedented. Back in 2002, News Corp's award-winning investigative journalist... What's going on here? Bloody hell. Okay. Let me... Let me just uh, play some Fox News while I get my... Twitter will learn to porn another day. And then there was a bizarre reference to the proper browser for Craigslist sex. So instead of raising questions about this guy's judgment, the media rushed to his rescue. All because, of course, he's now playing the victim. I'm on the cover of the New York Post, and that is a deeply...
like the internet is much scarier. He's so whipped by the woke police, he reflexively refers to himself as a cis white male of privilege. And naturally, like all liberals of today, he can't take a dose of his own medicine. Now, when the trans fanatics preying on our children are mocked, Roth stands with the deviancy and calls the critics dangerous. We have seen from a number of Twitter accounts, including libs of TikTok notably, that there are orchestrated campaigns that particularly are singling out a group that is already particularly vulnerable within society. And so, yeah, not only is it not funny, but it is dangerous. Uh, I'd say what's more dangerous is the fact that this was the person deemed most qualified by the Biden administration as a nuclear waste official, well, a dude in a dress. My name is Sam Brinton, and I serve as head of advocacy and government affairs for the Trevor Project. I'm a gender-fluid individual who walks the halls of Congress. Talk about the power of being free every day to hear my stilettos click on those marble floors and yet know that I deserve to be in that room just as much as anybody else. Now, that guy with the Joker lipstick deserves to be in the room. That's what he said. Well, remember, the Biden administration mainstreamed that circus act. Shock that they, them, turned out to be both gender fluid and luggage fluid. Well, so much for being in touch with his feminine side because he doesn't look very happy in that video when he's well, stealing ladies' luggage at the baggage carousel. Thankfully, finally, he was canned today. Now, degeneracy is a term that's kind of gone out of vogue, but as you can see, there are many reasons for it to make a comeback. For years now, universities, the White House, corporate America, big tech, Hollywood, they've worked overtime to destigmatize aberrant behavior while stigmatizing the traditional understanding. Claw back their power and make their support of deviancy too costly to continue? Our damaged democracy and depressed children will be left behind as collateral damage. And that's the angle. Now, speaking of mainstreaming depravity, the poster child for deviant behavior is President Biden's son, Hunter. And the fact that the media just... Okay, so when you listen to Richard Spencer and his crowd, they're, they're always talking about how autistic Republicans and conservatives are. But Republicans, conservatives run on... There's some very important issues, such as disincentivizing deviance, you know, disincentivizing antisocial behavior. Instead, provide incentives for people to work hard, to build families, right, to educate their children as they see fit. Incentivize people to provide for their own retirement, right? Instead of incentivizing people to engage in you know, all sorts of horrible behavior. And when people act criminally and violently, lock them up for a very long time. If we simply locked up 1% of the super predators, the quality of our life would be so much better. Okay, so let me try to fix my mic. I'll be back in a second. by name, we will have our words and our deeds analyzed. We should expect nothing less. You know, for seven years, I've had a microscope on me, but I would expect to have a microscope on me given the choices I've made in my career. If you are in charge 
of some of the most important decisions for one of the most important companies on planet Earth, then you deserve every bit of scrutiny you get. And this caterwauling from the media, this disingenuous crocodile tear shedding, pretending that it's so horrible that he is facing some kind of accountability for the decisions he made is completely and totally incredible. And I don't take it seriously for one second. And Miranda, I mean, on this issue, it seems... Okay, so is my sound quality better? Thank you for letting me know. Well, now my picture is frozen. Okay, I'm just going to... to I think I'm just going to give up on the stream. I will... Oh, so at least my sound quality is back. All right, so my picture's frozen, but uh, that, that's not a big deal. So let's just play the... Let's just play, is the Talmud racist? So this was uh, a discussion, a lecture by this left-wing academic. And yeah, if you define racist as strong in-group identity, then yeah, every you know, every normal in-group is going to be racist. I, I don't believe there's any such thing as racism. So you know, racism obviously is not a, a profound preoccupation of mine. But uh, let's go back to this discussion. Is the Talmud racist? There's some interesting perspectives here. And recrimination that makes this topic hard to talk about. So as I address the question of racism in the Talmud, I will be trying to do two things at the same time. First, I will challenge anti-Semitic traditions about the Talmud that perpetuate hateful ideas about Jewish people. Second, I will challenge elements of Talmudic tradition that perpetuate hateful ideas among Jewish people, both about Blacks and about non-Jews. To quickly move my personal story forward, after a decade in my Indiana congregation, I turned to full-time scholarship, focusing my research on how the Talmud relates to non-Jews. My investigations led to a book, as Steve mentioned. In it and in my talk today, I share some of the Talmud's most troubling content. So... The Talmudic rabbis had no idea that they would ever uh, have their comments read and analyzed by non-Jews. So whenever you have like a bunch of in-group people carrying on a, a conversation, right, they will tend to say things about out-groups that are frequently not very nice. And so you will find negative statements about non-Jews in the Talmud. But the Talmud is enormous. It's something like you know, 25,000 pages. And what's really surprising is in this you know, informal shorthand of rabbinic discussions from 2,000 years ago, there are comparatively few anti-Gentile sentiments. Ten, including degrading statements about non-Jews. In sharing these statements, I do not mean to suggest that they are the Talmud's dominant message. In fact, the book proposes that on the whole, rabbis do not ascribe any elemental differences to Jews and non-Jews. But Yeah, so... Generally speaking, the Talmudic rabbis did not believe that there were you know, substantial inherent you know, genetic differences, so to speak, elemental differences between Jews and non-Jews. I will focus in. So there are Jewish movements such as the Hasidic movement who have ascribed that you know, Jews have an additional soul than, than non-Jews, but that's a, that's a spiritual theological perspective. On the troubling parts, because they are most relevant to the consideration of racism in the Talmud. Is the Talmud how do I respond to the 109 countries meet? Yeah, Jews have been thrown out of 109 countries. And how do I respond to that? 
I, 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 I mean, I identified a, a devastating critique of Jews that uh, it, it makes sense to me that uh, strangers are not popular and Jews are pretty much everywhere a stranger. So I, I'm not shocked when, when Jews are unpopular or when people who are different are unpopular. So the majority of Jews have lived in the diaspora for the past 2,500 years. doesn't surprise me that strangers are found unpopular and that uh, strangers will often be expelled. I think that's, that's how the world works, right? We are most comfortable with people who are like us. We tend to fear and distrust people who are different. Jews are different. Therefore, there are going to be high amounts of fear and distrust of them. Racist? Before taking on this question, it is important to say a few words about what the word racism means, especially in the context of the ancient world. Today, to be called a racist is considered a terrible insult, and so it is not surprising that such accusations are generally answered with quick denials. To my Okay, I find the whole definition of racism pointless and useless. I don't believe there's any such thing. It's no moral category in my mind. I think People prefer people who are like themselves, and you can call that racist. I call it reality. There's different kinds of skin blemishes that the Bible considers impure. So this is a discussion in the Mishnah, which is the oral law, which was finally written down around year 200 of the Common Era, and the Talmud is rabbinic commentary on this oral tradition. The bright spot on a German appeal appears dull, and the dull spot on a Kushite appears bright. Rabbi Ishmael says, the children of Israel are like boxwood, neither black nor white, but of an intermediate shade. The Mishnah here discusses how different shades of skin complicate the work of diagnosing different kinds of blemishes. The Mishnah identifies a spectrum of skin colors, from the light skin of the German to the dark skin of a Kushite or Ethiopian. Along this spectrum, Rabbi Ishmael describes the skin of Jewish people, the children of Israel, as of an intermediate shade, comparing it to the bark of the boxwood tree. The Mishnah makes clear that this intermediate skin color is what the rabbis took to be the norm. They don't know how to identify skin blemishes except on skin like their own, medium brown. This text thus points to an important way in which our world is different from the world of the rabbis. Jews today come in all colors in the U.S. and around the world. There are black Jews, white Jews, brown Jews. But for the rabbis, the pale skin... Okay, 80% of the Jews in the world are Ashkenazi. Okay, they are, generally speaking, you know, fairly uh, European-looking. 95% of Jews in America identify as white. And they identify with Germanic tribes as exceptional, as is the dark skin they associate with the African kingdom of Kush. They take brown skin to be the Jewish norm. Another important aspect of this text is that it confirms that the rabbis had no concept of race based on skin color. Here, they recognize differences in skin tone, but they do not connect any mental or moral qualities with these differences. This does not mean that there is no denigration of black skin in the Talmud. As we turn now to the question of how the Talmud relates to black people, other texts give us a slightly more complicated picture. In seeking to explain the power of... So yeah, you'll find negative texts about black people in the Jewish tradition. I mean, you'll find negative texts about black people in many different traditions. It's not the primary focus of the Jewish tradition, but yeah, you'll find negative comments. Racist ideas. Many have identified religious belief as the flame, as the fuel that inflames racial brutality. For centuries, defenders of slavery and segregation in the U.S. 
looked to the Bible to justify racism. They claimed to find license for the subjugation of Black people in one scriptural passage that became a cornerstone of racist doctrine. More recently, some have alleged that it was the Talmud that provided a justification for the enslavement of Blacks. Let's begin by looking at the biblical passage in question. It tells of a moment after Noah left the ark. He planted a vineyard and became drunk. Seeing him drunk and naked, two of his sons, Shem and Japheth, took care to protect his dignity and privacy, but his son Ham and mostly his Ham's son Canaan did not. And now I quote, when Noah woke up from his wine and learned what his youngest son had done to him, he said, cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves shall he be to his brothers. As you can see, there is nothing in this passage itself that says anything about Black people, let alone justifies their enslavement. In tracing the early history of the interpretation of this passage, scholar David Goldenberg shows that while ancient Jews did see Ham as an ancestor of the Ethiopians, they did not associate Ethiopians or any Black Africans with... And a question from the chat. What's the definitive translation of the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh, for for the non-Jews? There's no definitive translation. Different translations have you know, different different virtues, different different strengths. But uh, the entirety of the Jewish tradition's holy texts are available for free. There's a Safari app, S-E-F-A-R-I-A, where you can get all the major texts of the Jewish tradition translated. So you can read the entire Talmud, uh, the entire history of the major rabbinic commentaries on the Talmud, on the Torah, all translated, all available in the Safari app for free. So Probably the Safari app would be the easiest way to get your teeth sunk into these texts. With slavery. For the rabbis and for their contemporaries in the ancient and late ancient world, enslavement had no connection with skin color. It was a punishment that conquerors imposed on their vanquished enemies. In other words, the strong take what they want and the weak endure what they must. Right? You're not uh, uh, more or less moral because you get conquered, right? You're just uh, weaker than your conqueror. So in life, it generally pays to be stronger rather than weaker. For ancient Jews, Ham's youngest son, Canaan, not his eldest son, Cush, was seen as the prototypical enemy cursed with slavery. And Canaanites are not described as having dark skin. The notion that Ham's curse imposes slavery on Black people is thus not in the Bible or in Jewish commentaries on the Bible. Rather, it was read back into the Bible by later interpreters who lived after the mass enslavement of Black Africans had been institutionalized. Goldenberg does, however, identify one tradition that associates Ham with Black skin. This Talmudic story is disturbing in that it interprets dark skin as a punishment for bad behavior. It builds on the rabbinic notion that all those human and animal couples on the ark had been instructed to refrain from having sex. The sages taught, three had sex in the ark and all of them were punished for doing so. They are the dog and the raven and Ham, son of Noah. The dog was bound, the raven spit, and Ham was punished with his skin. The parallel in the Palestinian Talmud makes clear that Ham's punishment is his skin turning black. 
I can't understand this bit about the raven spitting, however. Goldenberg proposes that the rabbis here merely express a preference for their own skin color over those of others. And he suggests that this tradition is an effort to explain what the rabbis took to be the anomalous color of dark skin in much the same way that other stories come to explain anomalies in nature, like why snakes crawl on their bellies. In my view, this tradition is more sinister and problematic than Goldenberg acknowledges in that it associates dark skin with transgressive sexuality and compares Black people to two kinds of animals that rabbis denigrate. For these reasons, I think this passage can be considered racist, certainly according to definition that we called number one. This tradition notwithstanding, Goldenberg is right, however, that denigrations of Black people are few and far between in the wide expanse of the Talmudic library. While a handful of individual rabbinic statements disparage dark skin or exoticize Africans, neither skin color nor African people are a major preoccupation of the rabbis. Today, we are steeped in a culture that is obsessed with skin color and other bodily signs of race. All of us have been trained in unspoken rules to notice certain qualities of people's bodies and classify people on that basis. The rabbis also had rules for drawing boundary lines of identity and difference, for distinguishing insiders from outsiders, their own group from others. But their unspoken rules were different. The rabbis of the Talmud were keenly interested in one social boundary above all, and that is the boundary that distinguishes Jews from non-Jews. The difference between Jews and non-Jews is of central interest to the rabbis, and so this is an area where it makes sense to look for racialized thinking. Defining Jewishness is a tricky business in our time, and it was in antiquity as well. To what degree does being part of the people of Israel relate to ancestry or to geography or to language? And so most people have more loyalty to their family than they have to other families. Right, And a tribe is simply an extended family. A nation is simply an extended family. Traditional people tend to have concentric circles of loyalty, first to the family, then to the extended family and relatives, then to community, then to your tribe, and then to your nation. So it makes sense that uh, Jews, along with other tribes, have you know, frequently strong in-group identities and some negative feelings about our groups. And to what degree is it a matter of behavior and belief? The rabbis inherited a diversity of views on the meaning of Jewish identity and on the nature of the boundaries that separated Jews from non-Jews. One way to... What is the Palestinian Talmud? So the Talmud is a collection of, of shorthand of rabbinic discussions on the Mishnah. And so... There was one large rabbinic academy centered in what's now known as Israel, the land of Israel, the land of Palestine, and this is the Palestinian Talmud. The Babylonian Talmud, which was a collection of rabbis in Babylon, modern-day Iraq, became the dominant Talmud. So normally when we talk about the Talmud, we're talking about the Babylonian Talmud. So it was formed in exile, it was formed in the diaspora, and so perhaps having to justify and explain yourself when you're a minority in another people's country uh, makes you smarter, sharper, you have to work harder. Perhaps that's a reason why the Babylonian Talmud is the dominant Talmud and the Palestinian Talmud, the one composed in the Holy Land of Israel, is 
very much of a minority concern in Jewish life. Capture the degree to which these boundaries were contested is to contrast how two biblical books, the book of Ruth and the book of Ezra, relate to issues of intermarriage and conversion. In the book of Ruth, the title character is a Moabite. After her Israelite husband dies, she pledges her loyalty to her mother-in-law, Naomi's God and people, and marries a distant... And the uh, Palestinian Talmud is also known as the Jerusalem Talmud. ...relative Boaz. Ruth is revered as the great-grandmother of King David, which makes her an ancestor of the Messiah as well. For the book of Ruth, boundaries between Jews and others are permeable, and people of non-Jewish backgrounds are not only welcome, but embraced and celebrated when they throw their lives... So it's not unusual that tribes allow converts, all right? There are Native American tribes that would essentially allow people from the outside to join their tribe. So usually there, there are rituals. This is usually the exception rather than the rule, right? Obviously, most people don't convert to becoming Comanche, but there were outsiders who got to join the Comanche tribe. So too with the, the tribe of Israel, there are various mechanisms for outsiders to join. With Israel. The book of Ezra, of Ezra takes a very different view, railing against Israelite men who marry women who are of Moabite or other non-Israelite backgrounds. Ezra calls on these men to separate from their wives and reject the children who are born from their unions. The book of Ezra introduces the idea of holy seed, a doctrine of genealogical purity which renders the boundaries that separate Israel from others impermeable. Neither. So this is Professor Mira Wasserman. She is a rabbi. She is a PhD. She is a professor at the Reconstructionist Judaism Seminary. Intermarriage nor conversion can be tolerated in Ezra because Jewish identity is exclusively a matter of heredity. Scholar Christine Hayes traces Ezra's doctrine of holy seed into the Second Temple period, describing how it animates the Book of Jubilees and is adopted by the sectarian Jews of Qumran, the community of the Dead Sea Scrolls. For these sectarians, one can no more convert into Judaism than one can opt into the priesthood. Right, so there have always been Jews who don't really hold with converts, people joining the tribe but they've usually been a minority. This view that Jewishness is indelible and exclusively genealogical, when coupled with the assertion that Jews are superior to others as God's elect, approaches racism, I think. This is not the view that the rabbis of the Talmud adopt, however. The rabbis affirm that it is possible for people of any background to join the Jewish people, and they look to Ruth as a model of a righteous convert. For the rabbis of the Talmud, Jewishness is not an exclusively genealogical identity. The rabbi's affirmation of conversion. Okay, let me fast forward here. The Talmud offers a mixed legacy. Its jangle of voices and visions include messages of division and degradation. So the Talmud is a is shorthand of rabbinic discussions that took place over hundreds of years between people who had no idea that uh, non-Jews would ever have to read their discussions. That clash with calls for justice, equity, and human dignity. This invests the work of its interpretation with ethical import. The task, as I understand it, is to grapple with all the Talmud's voices and views, seeking to understand them in their own context, and then to decide, is this a one might argue that the fundamental problem is um, the very concept at the very heart of Judaism, that there's a fundamental distinction between Jews and others. 
that Jews um, have some kind of privileged status, status versus others. And it's really that kind of binary thinking that um, is, if you think about it, it's something that uh, lies at the core of racist thinking as well, that there's a self and an other, um, and the self is somehow superior to the other. So given how important that binary is for yeah, most people think of themselves as superior to others. Most people think of their family as superior to others. Most people think of their tribe, nation, religion, geographic area as superior to others, right? It's usually normal, natural, and healthy to think this way. We, we'd be crushed by our own insignificance if we didn't. Judaism, between Jews and non-Jews, um, do you think that's a problem for Judaism? Or um, is there another way to understand this binary that doesn't make it um, kindred to kind of racialist thinking? Well, that's a big question. Um, so notice on the bottom left, it's Miriam Wasserman, and then backslash she, her. She gives us her pronouns. So I do think um, having distinctive particular identities is not racist. So um, Yeah, but the reality is when you have a distinctive particular identity and you have any sort of in-group identity whatsoever, you're going to develop negative feelings about out-groups. That's just the nature of social identity. Um, being part of a people is not racist. Um, when Jewish people are proud to be Jews and identify with a culture apart from another culture, I don't think that's inherently racist. Neither is it when other peoples. Uh, but it, it always works out that way. You have a strong in-group identity, you're always going to have negative feelings about outgroups. Have their own particular traditions, um, which give them strength and resilience and a feeling of meaning and connection. I think all that's for the good. Um, I do think uh, it's helpful not to think in terms of a binary so much as sort of a rainbow or a, a, an assortment of different peoples, all deriving um, their own distinctive meanings and their own distinctive traditions. So I think moving away from a binary and recognizing the... Yeah, the nature of reality is binary. It's us versus them. So what about whites? Yeah, the stronger someone's white identity, the more likely they are to have you know, negative feelings about outsiders. The Talmud relates to um, different bodies. Absolutely. Something to be pursued for sure. So th thank you for raising that up. The beauty of different bodies. Okay, um, I want to throw you a, a kind of a, a wild card and see if, see if you want to take it up. Um, we have a question that's come in um, that really makes the, the question very big. Um, so it's asking, how can we reconcile the traditional reliance on Havdalah, so basic binary distinctions? So the Havdalah is the Jewish ritual for the end of the Sabbath, where you thank God for the difference between Jews and non-Jews, between the Sabbath and the other days of the week, uh, between all sorts of different distinctions. Um, which regard... So the, the Hebrew word for holy, kadosh, literally means distinction or difference. So holiness is based on making distinctions and separations. Um, which some regard, regard as fundamental to, to Jewish thought with a notion of multiple or rainbow options. Um, and so you could put a lot of things rainbow into this options. question. There's a lot of ways to approach it. But do you want to take Praise a stab at thinking about that big one? Rainbow options. Um, that's really big. Um, the notion to Havdalah is interesting. Um, so as you know, I, my, my center is affiliated with the Reconstructionist movement. So in Reconstructionist liturgy, um, in the long list of the Havdalah service of the different kinds of divisions that are made between darkness and light, between the holiness of the Sabbath and the everydayness of the week, um, traditionally, we'd also say between um, Israel and the other nations. So that particular line is something that um, Reconstructionists don't include. What kind of nation would not celebrate differences between their nation and other nations? I mean, this is just absolutely fundamental to human identity. Like I'm reading articles 
how ultimate underdog Morocco became the Rocky of this World Cup. Well, apparently this is the first African, uh, the first Arab nation, right, to, to make the semifinals of the World Cup. And they are going mad. They're celebrating. All Arabs are supporting them, Nizar Ahmed, 27-year-old nurse from Jordan said. We have an Arab country as one of the best in the world. So what else are Arabs going to celebrate? Are they going to celebrate all their innovative scientific inventions or their life-saving medical inventions, the high quality of Arab governments, the you know the beauties and the depth of, of Arab literature, of Arab business acumen? I mean, what else are Arabs going to celebrate? They're not exactly setting the world on fire. To the best of my knowledge, it may be just you know lack of media reporting in all sorts of areas. So Morocco geographically is a North African country, but Culturally and linguistically, the article says it's part of the Arab world, also genetically. Right? The team has adopted both identities, both Arab and African. So people from all over the Arab world have put aside their political differences when it comes to cheering for Morocco. Morocco's success in the World Cup is seen as successful for Arab nations as well as all North African nations, says this professor at San Diego State. So... This allows you know Arabs to go crazy and to celebrate. That Arabs prove they're able to jump and fly and soar, not just in sports, but in all aspects of life. They have the will and determination, says this Jordanian commentator. Congratulations to Morocco and to all the Arabs. Morocco's winning goal was on this unbelievable leap and header by a Moroccan player. So you know, this this is giving a great boost to Moroccans, to Arabs, Arabs express solidarity with the Palestinians. So supporting Morocco is a chance for Arabs to express common ground with one another in support of the Palestinians. So this goes back to my point that the stronger, the more extreme your sports fandom, right? The the bigger the role that sports plays in your life, like generally speaking, the more empty your life. So the, the Arab and African worlds don't have a whole lot to celebrate. The reason that they are going so mad over this World Cup, in in large part, is as a result of you know, the emptiness of their civilizations. Just not a lot of great things going on in Arab and African civilization right now. So they're going wild over the World Cup. So why study Talmud? Why should we study the Talmud? Uh, anybody answering that question, I wouldn't trust. There's too many reasons. It's too complex of a text. It is actually too exciting, I think, to, to fit into one answer. So I will try and answer um, this question in a way that uh, builds my own research. And I will say, well, let's look at the Talmud as a text that should be studied because it is very funny. Okay, now, okay. That's a, that is an unusual way of approaching a religious text. To, to say the least. And um, I would say it is uh, a text uh, that needs to be studied most of all on its own terms. The Talmud is... Um, uh, a text as we have it, which was redacted in 5th, 6th century Babylonia, just the rabbi says, in Iraq. And the uh, rabbis uh, did um, give us this, this wonderful gift, uh, but there's quite a bit of work to be done to understand it. It is a legal commentary. Now, it's the most complex and most abstract form of literature you can have. It uh, tells you how to live a Jewish life in all its complexity. So it's a very difficult and, and demanding text. I've spent thousands of hours in Talmud class, and I just have the, the smallest grasp of it. And yet you, you see all over YouTube comments and all over the web, people you know, with these definitive 
descriptions of the Talmud as degenerate. You know, people who haven't spent you know twelve hours of their life studying Talmud. So the Talmud is one of those areas where, generally speaking, those who are the most likely to talk about it publicly know the least. But uh, this bloke here is a professor of Talmud. He seems to know something. For all its um, details, how to eat, how to have sex, how to have children, how to raise children, how to react to the government, the entire life is in there, and it's mostly legal commentary. But in between that legal commentary, we do find narratives. And this is my personal inroad here. We do find narratives of rabbis, and we do find uh, a genre that uh, does fit the modern concept of parody and of satire. Parody being a retelling of a previous story with a difference, satire being comical criticism, and the Talmud combines both. They tell satirical parodies, the rabbis, uh, that do make a very, very serious religious point. And that's, I think, something that uh, I want to preface when I say it is funny. It is funny, but it is funny for that serious uh, um, outcome. And so it's not deliberately funny. You're not going to break up laughing when you crack open the Talmud, but it's frequently unintentionally funny because it's so raw, because it's an in-group discussion by people in a strongly identifying in-group who have no idea that eventually one day members of out-groups will have access to their words. And these uh, laughing matters aren't uh, to be laughed at, so to speak. <laughs> now, um, how is the Talmud funny and how can we learn from it as a funny text, I would say we need to start with the law. We need to start with, um, for example, Rabbi Jeremiah and the limits of parody. Rabbi Jeremiah uh, is a figure who time and again tries to push uh, rabbinic wit to its limits. And he is the one who eventually gets kicked out of the academy because he overdoes it. Um, and he does it by means of imitating religious discourse to the wrong end. Now, I'll give you an example. Um, the discussion at hand in the Talmud is, if you find a little bird, to whom does it belong? If there's a dovecot, uh, and if you find it within a certain distance from the dovecot, you um, have to return it to the owner. If it's beyond a certain distance, well, it's yours. Uh, the rabbis then go on and say, well, what if it's a little bird that cannot fly? Then they change the distance. If it is, uh, the next question they ask is, well, how about if there are two dovecots? And again, they say, well, whoever you find it closest to. Um, and then Robert Jeremiah comes in and says, well, what if it is exactly in between two dovecots, one foot here and one foot there? Talking about a little pigeon or a little bird. And the rabbis kick him out of the academy for that question. Now, it's odd because in other cases, the rabbis do discuss things in such minute matter and with such, uh, uh, say, neglect of practical reality, fully um, enclosed in a legal reality, that he would say, well, it's a perfectly legitimate question. What, what do you do if you find it exactly in the middle? Why does Rabbi Jeremiah get kicked out? And But if you go back and look at the broader uh, narratives about Rabbi Jeremiah, you see that he's always a jester. He tries to f put things ad absurdum, not for the sake of narrative, which would be legitimate, but for the sake of poking fun. And at some point, he asks his master uh, something, wants to make him laugh, and the Talmud says the master did not laugh. <laughs> so uh, it's a very serious matter here, and getting kicked out of the academy is, is a serious matter. He gets eventually readmitted. Okay, here's a little talk here on purity, politics, and the problem of Jewish Very solidarity. Very briefly at some case studies that I'm just going to sort of introduce, and then I'll have some concluding thoughts um, and questions to share. So to begin with, the concept of purity in religious traditions and Judaism more specifically is something that many of us are quite familiar with. As a general rule, discussions of purity and impurity in religions don't tend to raise red flags. It's just what religions do. First and foremost, though, we need to understand that... Pure well, purity, 
is an obsession with most traditionalists, right? They, they fear impurity, contagion, and disorder, while the primary left-wing fears are ignorance and bigotry. Impurity and impurity are embodied. Impurity is the state of a thing and can be imparted onto someone or something. So purity in, in Judaism is not really consonant with the English word purity. It's more a matter of appropriate or fit. There's no exact English word. So we're talking here, we're trying to translate uh, Hebrew language, Aramaic language, religion into English. It doesn't translate exactly. It's contagious. We're most familiar, for example, with the ideas of impurity and purity. So going back to the Pentateuch, right, all through the Jewish tradition, there's a fear that, you know, filth will envelop and diminish the community and will essentially drive God out of the community. And so the the Jewish tradition contains all sorts of rituals for cleansing, replenishing the community. One of the the rituals, essentially a study of Talmud, that's that's a way of, you know, kind of cleansing yourself. You know, you study good religious text and it kind of cleanses your soul. It's a way of, you know, washing yourself free. I mean, I take a shower at least once a day. I think having, you know, a healthy concern for being clean is a good thing. Purity in the laws of Tahara Mishpacha, the laws of family purity, which render a menstruating woman pure or impure, depending not only on whether she's currently bleeding, but also how recently she has been in contact with that blood. This is true as well with respect to contact with a corpse or carrion, for example, so when status is based on their proximity to impurity in space, matter, and time. Tahara is a state of ritual purity, and, and impurity is imparted by and through a host. Well, guys and many women, you know, tend to, tend to be a little uh, disturbed by, you know, these monthly you know, emissions of blood. And so... Societies have, you know, traditionally, you know, grappled with the the challenge of menstruation. So it's not just something that uh, the Jewish tradition has grappled with. Most of things and activities. So many of us have been deeply influenced. Oops, sorry, hold on. <laughs> by the work of social anthropologist Mary Douglas, who wrote in her book Natural Symbols, the human body is always treated as an image of society. And scholars of religion were taught to read discourses of purity and impurity as natural human processes, establishing boundaries, making order out of chaos, distinctions between categories of things and people. The laws of Kashrut, for example, do many things. They make the quotidian sacred, as with many other embodied Jewish ritual practices. But at the same time, they establish hard lines of division. Creating strict laws around food serves powerfully to separate Jews from non-Jews. The laws of Tahara Mishpacha function in a similar way. While there are many interpretations and experiences that shift how individuals relate to and find meaning in particular practices, the rituals unquestionably function to draw dividing lines between people based on the grounds of embodied difference. An image of society is mapped onto biological sex. So it's not just uh, Jews who use rituals with regard to food to separate the in-group from the out-group. So if you talk to Orthodox Jews, most of them understand kashrut having a meaning, among other meanings, of separating Jews from non-Jews. Non-Orthodox Jews would be you know, less likely to 
reach for that explanation, they'd, they'd say it's to do with health, which it isn't. There's no evidence that this is driven by a concern for health. It's driven by a whole series of concerns about separation. So separation is kind of the essence of traditional Jewish identity, separation between the Jew and the non-Jew, between the Sabbath and secular times of the week, between adults and children, between human and animal. Deeming some things and people more pure or impure in a hierarchical system that establishes, in this case, men as more pure more of the time than are women. So embodied purity and impurity does not reflect a neutral ordering of chaos. Rather, they reveal systems. And Douglas famously wrote that if we can abstract from the notion of dirt... So people on the left love to analyze systems of power, but they never or rarely use that that left-wing critique on themselves. Now that the liberal left controls almost every major institution in the Western world, right? why not analyze how the liberal left uses that power to essentially oppress people who aren't on the left? Understanding dirt is matter out of place, it implies a set of ordered relations and a contravention to that order. It's never a unique or isolated event, but the byproduct of systematic ordering and classification of matter, insofar as ordering involves... So order, classification, people on the right do have a strong fetish for for, for these things. When I've been able to get a name for something that's troubling me, you know, I feel a lot better. That's how I make sense of the world is by classifying things and by creating order out of chaos. Rejecting inappropriate elements. However, as many critical theorists have pointed out, Douglas misses something. We must go beyond her to think about the aspect of purity discourse and practices that involve the rejecting of inappropriate elements. How lovely, right? If you're deemed appropriate, a member of the collective we that is pure, and that's what she focused on generally. That classification can be a unifying process for those who find themselves deemed inside. Has there ever been a community that has not regarded some things as inappropriate? And it has not wanted to put, you know, the inappropriate, you know, away from the, you know, main body of the community. I think this is a pretty normal, natural and healthy human reaction. The boundary of purity. But the system requires something that some things. Do I think that people on the left or people on the right have a lower tolerance for ambiguity? I don't think it's a, an ideological question. People in Central and Eastern Europe tend to have a very low tolerance for ambiguity. People in East Asia tend to have a very low tolerance for ambiguity. Uh, Anglo nations have about the highest tolerance for ambiguity and uncertainty. So Anglo nations tend to be very empirical. Uh, they, you know, they're looking for, for detailed examples and facts, while philosophy from the continent tends to be you know, much more abstruse and, and sweeping, much less concerned with the facts and empiricism and some people be rejected. Scholars such as Robbie Dushinsky note that the designation of pure and impure oops, is an assessment. How does uh, victimization work in Judaism? Pretty much the same way it works in every other group identity. I don't know how you have any strong in-group identity without a sense of victimization. So I grew up a Seventh-day Adventist. We had a sense of victimization. Protestants have all these books about Protestant martyrs at the hands of Catholics. I don't know Catholicism as well, but I'm sure they have a steady collection of anecdotes and and books and songs about how Catholics have been martyred and how Catholics are victims. Uh, Muslims have their anecdotes and stories and books and songs about how they've been victims. 
every nationalism, every form of strong in-group identity contains a considerable element of feeling victimized. You can't really build a strong in-group identity, a strong nationalism without anecdotes and texts and songs and poetry about victimization. Everybody has reason to feel victimized. I can come up with reasons for how I've been victimized. You can come up with reasons for how you've been victimized. Blacks have their songs and stories about how they've been victimized. White people have songs and stories about how they've been victimized. Everybody can easily access the feelings of victimization because they're an inherent part of in-group identity. There's no strong in-group identity without a strong sense of victimization. You tell stories about what's happened in the past, and you remember how your group was persecuted, right? That's a large part of what in-group identity and nationalism is all about. This is as true for Jews as for Blacks, as for gays, as for the French or the Japanese or, you know, Anglo-Americans. Assessment of the essence of a thing, a person, or a body. He suggests that in Western societies, themes of purity and impurity are best understood as an assessment of their relative self-identity, of something or someone, their qualitative homogeneity or their... Yeah, most people don't particularly care for strangers. Right? Anglos are probably the most welcoming of strangers because of their high tolerance for uncertainty. Right? But generally speaking, people don't care for that which is different. Generally speaking, people tend to have far more negative views of that which is different and strange to them than that which is familiar. Essence. So we see this in nationalism all the time, right? A citizen, he notes, is taken by nationalist discourse to be pure if they're in some sense the same, homogenous with other members of the nation. And that's their essence. The suggestion that he makes here is that the act of assessment of discerning pure and impure involves a categorization of subjects, groups, things, based on their proximity or distance from this some ideal of homogeneity, of purity. It's not some you know, abstract ideal. Everybody has an innate sense of that which is weird, strange, and different, right? People don't tend to like that which is weird, strange, and different. People don't tend to like individuals who are weird, strange, and indifferent. It, it doesn't take a PhD to understand this, right? We naturally feel more at ease with that which is familiar and similar to us. Purity of essence or truth. But the determination of this purity, the essence of the thing is subjective and unstable. And in revising her own work. Yes, uh, feeling yourself part of a, a community of a nation, all right, it, it, it is you know, frequently subjective. Right? It's an imagined uh, community. You don't know everybody in your nation. You'll never get to meet them, but you feel this imagined kinship with them because they're the largest possible group where they, they feel like some kind of extension of your own family. Mary Douglas noted that there is no natural desire for cognitive or social order at the base of purity or impurity designations, and there's no intrinsic value to purity for the individual society. While it may indeed be used as it is in Jewish ritual and tradition to delineate what is sacred from what is not, she argued that the only thing universalistic about purity is the tendency to use it as a weapon or tool. And Look, I, I, you know, I've been staying with a friend, I've, I've been staying with family members. When you stay with other people, they have certain rituals, they have certain practices in their home. And you don't want to start introducing strange, you know, disturbing 
practices and rituals into a home. People want to keep things you know, familiar to them. And we're quite familiar with the ways in which purity discourse functions as a weapon, discourse that views those people as the problem. Recent police shootings, the latest of a 15-year-old Micaiah Bryant on Tuesday, is an ongoing reminder. Okay, so question, how does the need to be precise Anglo philosophy translate to a higher tolerance for ambiguity? Wouldn't it be the opposite? So Anglo academic work in social sciences and the humanities tends to be focused on the particular. So there's a strong anti-intellectual tradition in the Anglo tradition. We're, we're much more concerned with the, the concrete and the particular, while in the continental European tradition, it's much more concerned with, with grand sweeping ideas. So if you're just focusing on the concrete and the particular, that there are things that you don't understand or ambiguous, you're going to have much more sense of ease with that as opposed to continental philosophy, which is these top-down grand theories you know, frequently lacking in empirical evidence. So because you're so concerned about, about the unexpected that, uh, that there's this great need in continental philosophy to come up with you know, philosophies that will account for everything in life. And so ambiguity and the unexpected are a threat to the certainty of continental top-down philosophies. So even the Germans have you know, philosophies and even laws for, for what happens when the law breaks down. Of the ways that processes of assessment happen as part of the order of things, determining what and who is expendable or must be rejected. But why, you might ask, am I making a connection between racism and conceptions of religious purity? They seem... Well, they're both forms of in-group identity, right? Racism is just a pejorative term that you've given for one expression of in-group identity. Quite different. But the ways in which we talk about and understand race today often mask racism's historic relationship to notions of purity. Indeed, purity, even in the Levitical context, is about ideas of embodied impurity, about conceptions of taint. Ideas always come from a particular person or persons within a particular tribe and, and community. Right? Ideas on, on purity, laws about purity, religious conceptions of purity, they always emerge from a particular people at a particular point in time, a particular in-group, a particular tribe and contamination that are carried by bodies. And it's not uncommon to hear the rituals of family purity, for example, reimagined and viewed as empowering, but we don't see that with racial purity. There's no- And the chat says, when victimization manifests itself in an aggression, political, economic, physical, and results in active aggressive response implemented by a government against a people, this makes for conflict. Conflict is inherent in the world. It's not possible to live without conflict. We're all stuck in an iron cage together. Human desires are infinite. Available resources are finite. Different groups have different agendas. And so conflict is inevitable. It doesn't you know, require some you know, special text or some special ethnic or religious group to bring it about. Conflict is inherent in life. You don't find in nature two subspecies you know, living at peace with each other. In nature one subspecies will wipe out all the other subspecies in a particular place. That's how the world works. I didn't create the world. I just observe it. Good ethics that would do that. But in fact, racial and religious purity cannot be disaggregated, just as race and religion can't be. 
And we must attend to their co-constitution if we're with the series has sought to do, if we're actually going to understand how these categories are mobilized. And- so there's a quote here from Mary Douglas, the only thing universalistic about purity is the tendency to use it as a weapon or a tool. But you can just say the same thing. The only thing universalistic about families is the tendency to use family as a weapon or a tool. And if you love something, you're going to want to protect it and you're going to hate that which threatens it. So nationalism comes with you know, a dark side. Right, because you love a particular people, you're going to hate that which threatens your people. Right? If if you want to keep something pure, you're going to hate that which sullies or threatens the purity of your love. And although they're mobilized often as separate categories, their history has kept them entangled. So, as noted, purity and uh, chat says, okay, so people can't live in peace. That's good to know. Uh, people can't live in peace when either one people is completely dominant over the other people, so there's no point in rebelling, or two, the, the peoples who are in contact with each other have you know, more things in common and as opposed to incentives to break out into conflict. But you cannot live without the threat of conflict. The conflict is inherent. The feelings of betrayal is inherent in all human relationships. As soon as you form any kind of relationship with someone, you are creating the inevitability of a feeling of betrayal because other people will not live up to your expectations. People are always going to surprise you and you're always going to experience their surprising behavior as a betrayal. So conflict is written into the very marrow of life. Now, sometimes conflict is open. Sometimes conflict is subtle. Sometimes there, there are no incentives for conflict to break out, but the potential for violence and for conflict is always there. And impurity don't actually function within a given religious tradition only. They are also categories that have been used to distinguish between different religious groups. We know this well. It's just human nature to categorize and distinguish between your family, your group, your tribe, and some different family, some different group, some, some different tribe with respect to ideas of purity of blood. As Irene Silverblatt states in her work, Modern Inquisitions, tracing the modern world back to the 16th century lets us get a better grasp on another of the modern world's deceits, state fetishism. Veiling our origins in a globalizing hierarchical world has also veiled our origins in race thinking. It has made us lose sight of our colonial foundations and of the antagonistic social relationships at its core. Has there ever been a community, has there ever been a society where there weren't antagonistic social relations, where everybody just lived in peace? No, that's never occurred. What we're talking about are the the degrees of the violence in the antagonistic social relations. The the violence can be verbal, it can be microaggressions, or it can be macroaggressions like rape, grievous bodily harm, murder, and torture. Yes, race thinking, nationalist sentiments, bureaucratic rule, colonialism, and the nascent capitalist economic order girding them had different roots and different pasts, but history joined them 500 years ago, and history accordingly paved the way for an onslaught of often deadly confusions. Silverblatt goes on to talk about this race thinking that emerges, and that in fact, inquisitors were charged with certifying Spanish purity of blood. Uh, There was no race thinking until people realized there were different races, right? Until the Europeans started exploring Africa, they had no idea about Africans. But it was the encounter with Africans that led the European need to classify 
different peoples, right? The, the encounter with the, the other in, in Africa, that's what stimulated the development of European racial thinking. Because when they encountered Africans, they were unlike any other people they'd known before. Which was defined as the absence of Jewish or Moorish blood, right? And overseeing religious orthodoxy, which was assessed based on purity of blood. So the idea of blood purity wasn't limited, though, to the Inquisition. Religious difference, skin color, geographic origin, all coalesce in Orientalist and colonial definitions of race. Right, you can just sum it all up. Uh, people don't tend to like strangers very much. And in particular, Jews are pretty much everywhere being a stranger. Okay, I've got to run off. I'm going to leave it there for now. Talk to you later. Bye-bye.